0: Welcome to the Nerd Party.
1: I think people are perverts. I've maintained that. That's the foundation of my career.
2: Welcome to House of Fincher, the podcast on the Nerd Party Network, where your hosts go through all of David Fincher's films in chronological order. Why? Because we love him. Why do we love him? Because he's amazing. Why is he amazing? Because he takes little tiny movies like this and gives it all of his heart and all of his passion to make an absolutely amazing date night kind of movie. And join with me in this room that feels a little smaller i think it should actually be a little bigger than this don't you guys agree
1: yeah this wall this is weird this, this is weird, weird. I, I keep expecting it to go out i i don't know what happened to the rest of it
2: yes well joining us to discuss we've got the wonderful john mills and tristan riddell john how are you doing
1: oh i'm not locked in here with you you're locked in here with me
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: tristan thank you so much for joining us how's your blood sugar level Oh, it's good because I was smart enough to grab it in in a catastrophe, uh, not after the catastrophe. Excellent.
1: Good plan, good
2: plan. We are talking about Panic Room, David Fincher's fifth film, hot on the heels of Fight Club. And um, I I asked to lead this one here because I actually really, really love this movie. And uh, we'll talk about it as we go through part of the reasons why I love it. Um, But before we start, Tristan, I'm going to ask you, do you remember what your first exposure was to this film.
3: Oh man. Um, you know, we asked this question every single time we record. So you'd think I'd remember that I should have something prepared <laughs> or think about it for a little bit. But I, I don't, I, I don't remember when I first uh, watched Pandora. I think this is, this is so weird because I'm, I'm such, obviously I'm a gigantic Fincher fan because I'm helping co-host a podcast about it. I'm devoting part of my, my day and my week to this. And I feel like so many of his films, especially his his first half, uh, I was exposed to because of TV. Like uh-huh. it was on, you know, like on a lazy Sunday or something like that. And I, I really do think that Panic Room was a lazy Sunday afternoon movie. And mm-hmm. I honestly don't have... It 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 didn't really wow me. I was just kind of I was half watching it. I half remember it. And then when I went and bought it on Super Bit DVD, uh, yeah. it was. <laughs> I never really fell in love with it that much. I I never really, I never really connected with it. And so this was always kind of like, um, like when you, when you talk about Fincher's movie, this is always, movies, this is always one that kind of falls to the wayside in my conversation, I feel like in a lot of people's conversation. But, um, spoiler alert, I watched it last night in preparation for this,
1: and I loved it the most that I ever have last mm. night. This is the first Fincher movie I didn't see in the theater. Uh, and right. that is because this is where real life starts to get in the way of the movies. I had not met my wife yet. Uh, that was still off in the future, about a year. Because this came out in March 2002, right? Yeah. yeah. And so projecting outward, what had happened by this point was I had been laid off by Toys R Us, who had bought my the little small toy chain that I worked for. Um, in January of that year. And so it was several months of trying to, you know, get my life back together sort of thing. And, uh, so when this came out, I had actually just started, I, I would have just started working at the first job I managed to get afterward. Uh, not, you know, just a couple of weeks before, cause it, it was, I was laid off at the end of January of that year. And so it was like mid to late March of that year when I finally got, uh, meaningful employment afterward. Mm-hmm. Because when you work for a toy store, you're not exactly high in demand in other markets. And so <laughs> I can tell you that um, bouncing on, like a panic room was just something that just slipped completely by me. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't come to it until, I guess, about a year and a half later when my wife and I, uh, my future wife at that point. Oh, whatever. Timelines start to get blurry after that. Uh, I met her and then everything just becomes a blur. And mm-hmm. But we watched it on You know, you said Brandon a date night, so it was like, "Hey, let's watch this." I love Fincher. You know, this is cool, and we watched it. And I've loved it about the same since then. I, I, you know, and when I rewatched it, I was at about the same level uh, that I was. So, Mm -hmm. what about what about you, Brandon? What was your first encounter with it?
2: So my first encounter with this, um, I had rented it on probably that same Superbit version DVD because the original release, that was all that was there was just the Superbit. No bonus features, no nothing, just the movie. Um, I missed it in theaters, uh, but I rented it and I watched it at home and I was completely blown away the very first time I watched this movie because I didn't know anything about it. All that I knew was that it was Fincher. I hadn't seen any trailers or anything. I did not know a single thing about this movie. So I went in completely blind. And the, the slow motion sequence when she comes out of the panic room to get the phone. I, I was literally on the edge of my seat. I know people say that. But I, I remember physically moving forward on my seat. As I was watching this movie for the first time. And while I don't physically do that anymore. I still remember that feeling every single time I watch this movie. And that's the sequence that gets me. And I absolutely love this movie. And I think it is an absolute underrated masterpiece. Now I later bought the three disc DVD. And again when I bought the three disc DVD I'm like. What the hell? Like, why is there a three-disc DVD for Panic Room? This doesn't make any sense. And I started to watch all the bonus features. And I just, I did not realize how much, you know, visual effects and stuff and how much planning he put into this movie. Because it is so contained in such a small space. I was, I was once blown away a second time learning how he made this movie and that three-disc that DVD edition of mine was a staple of mine for years selling home theaters. Hmm. And the sequence that I use to sell home theaters is one of my favorite sequences in film. And that's the sequence of the camera moving through the house. Mm-hmm. You know, I would put that on and sell a home theater every time because I would tell them, this is what you're going to hear. The camera's going to back up and it's going to tilt down and you'll hear the rain go from in front of you to behind you. And then the camera will float down. It'll come up. You'll hear the street. You'll go in to the keyhole and you'll hear a big kachunk, And then you'll turn around and you'll hear everything. The street sounds come from in front of you and they'll go behind you. And I would explain it all and play it for people and their mouths would just drop every time and it was a so it was a staple of mine so that scene i've seen a thousand times in my life i'm sure that one particular scene
3: that took 2 weeks to film the scene that you're talking about
2: yeah 2 weeks
3: and they all that the 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 crew fincher and the crew would just call it the big shot yeah. cuz they, they said they couldn't come up with a fancy name for it it was just a big shot um be, brandon i'm uh, i'm really jealous of you i used to sell TVs i used to sell big screen TVs that was one of my first jobs And uh, we didn't get to show anything cool. It was like Monsters, Inc. or Finding Nemo. And that's it. That's all we had. So I'm insanely jealous of you.
2: Yeah, we we would. I I had first, I had, for the disc edition, I had the Indiana Jones box set. And the first thing that I used was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the the, the dogfight sequence. Oh, yes. And then... After that, because it sounded cool, but after that, I w- I went with Panic Room, and I just that was my major staple for for selling home theaters. So oh, I feel left I out.
1: It. I just sold toys, and none of them <laughs> were from Panic Room, and, <laughs> they, they, uh, there was
2: no there was no tie in material for Panic Room at Toys R Us.
1: Strangely enough, no. I I I find that very odd. You would think that Raúl at least would have been a good chase figure to have. You know,
3: I was going to say I I had Raúl. I could have sworn they made one because I had Raúl
1: with the detachable <laughs> fingers. You know what? There's I You know what? There has got to be somebody that's listening, that is either or knows somebody who does custom action figures. And mm-hmm. I think the three of us, we we <laughs> want, just post a picture. We're not asking you to send us anything. I want a little action figure. I want somebody at least to make one with a mask that comes on and off. I think with the the it. three of us, we have a wide enough nerd net that yeah. I I feel like we could we could cast it out and get get something back. <laughs> yeah. and then. And then we can mail it to David Fincher so that he knows the three people to put on the restraining order who went to that amount of effort. To oh, make
3: the oh you know what? Okay, I'm just I'm, time out just for a second. I gotta interject Uh-oh. this because I cannot believe I forgot to talk about this a couple of episodes ago during seven. So, um, I it's Christmas time a couple of years ago, and I get a, um, I get a box. In the mail. It's a small box about, you know, like six What inches, was in the box? Six, exactly. You know where I'm going. And it said Detective Riddell on it. It said to Detective Riddell. It had no return address whatsoever. And I open it. And inside, like, and there's, there's tissue paper with red stains all over it. <laughs> and so I open up the tissue paper. And there is a Gwyneth Paltrow Barbie head decapitated. Like, there's nobody, no nothing. And I think it was her doll from Iron Man 3 or something like that, S- something like that from some MCU movie. And, and it was, there was no note, no nothing, <laughs> n- not who it's from. I know, I know who it's from now, uh, but it was, I could not stop. Laughing, and I cannot believe that I didn't tell that story during the seven episodes. So I just had to get that out of my system, polish it
1: back to to panic room, back to panic room. Well, well, there you go. Uh, At least it wasn't Jodie Foster. You know, somebody took her taxi driver action figure, if there is such a thing, and and (laughs) beheaded that. But I, you know, Brandon, I think you know, you talking about the technical stuff, that's that's one of the things that I think is most appealing about Panic Room, is regardless of whether you think it's an undiscovered masterpiece or anything like that. The technical prowess on display is stunning. And that big shot that you're talking about, but just about every single standout sequence in it is, again, that statement from Fincher of a guy who is completely in control. Each film, you feel that control get more refined and more precise. And I think that the other scene that you talked about, that scene where she sneaks out to go get the cell phone, Mm-hmm. Is such a magnificently done uh, uh, sequence. Uh, like the, the, the point where they drop the sound, yeah. and you can see Forrest Whitaker yelling and they're having a, an, an argument, but you know that that sound isn't even really occurring to her. So you're experiencing sort of what she is, where it's like there's an awareness of what's happening, but all you're focused on is getting that phone. Mm -hmm. And I have to give uh, Fincher a lot of credit because finding the balance between how long or how many times is too many times to have her brush that phone and push it further, directors wrestle with that. How many times is too many times? And this is one of those few times where it's just right up to that line of too much. Mm-hmm. And then it just pulls back, and you're right back in the the swing of things. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you mentioned that, John, because
3: Fincher originally didn't want to do that at all. Like he really? he wanted to make this sequence much um, tighter and shorter, and he didn't want her to like touch the phone. He wanted her to be he wanted basically wanted her to run, grab the phone, and run back. Like he didn't want to like push the like uh, to do the whole thing where like the lamp falls and like he she touches the phone and it just keeps going further and further he thought that was kind of hackneyed stuff but the screenwriter kept he convinced him to do it and he's like fine i'll do it but i'm gonna do it in slow motion because if i'm gonna pander i'm gonna pander and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he flourished it he, he embraced it which was really yeah. really i think obviously the best the decision. right choice
1: yeah well I, I think the best part of it is you you mentioned the lamp the lamp oh falling and then the fl- that lightning flash and oh. just the way that it plays where you see it register in Whitaker's eyes of something just happened and yep. turning around like it's just such a magnificent moment of you're ready to leap out of your seat because you're like oh I know what this means oh no
2: <laughs> yeah I'm so glad to hear that, John, because, you know, you've said many times that you're not a big fan of slow motion in movies.
1: Ah, I'm an extremely picky, picky person when it comes to slow motion. There are certain, okay, one of the most egregious violations of my slow motion tastes, uh, the, I, I think the moment where it crystallized, really crystallized for me, was Terminator 3. Because there's a a scene where he walks out with the coffin and he turns around and it's slow motion for absolutely no reason. And I remember sitting in the theater and it happened and I said, what the hell was the point of that? Like if it doesn't do anything to enhance the tension or anything, why bother? You know, like slow motion works here or, uh, you know, in the cave on Dagobah. Or even on the Death Star when Obi-Wan gets cut down, like the slow motion makes sense there. It builds emotion and impact. And unless it does that, what the hell is the point? What, what, what do you think about Wes Anderson's slow motion? Hit and miss. All depends. Okay. Okay. You, you're in Rushmore, and he's having that moment where the crowd cheering suddenly magnifies, and it sounds like a stadium cheering for him, and he turns around with that smug look with the tissue paper shoved up his bloody nose that is masterful slow motion as well because it enhances everything and you're there with the character. But, you know, it all depends on the situation. All right. all right. I won't dig any deeper because we're not doing the the House of Anderson. (laughs) Right. No. No House of Anderson.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because that sequence, like you said, when you don't hear them, you don't need to hear what they're arguing about. You know what they're arguing about. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Doesn't matter what they're arguing about, but you know what's going on. And having her run out and take that, that, risk, you know, because like Jodie Foster is not a large person, right? Mm -hmm. She's a very small woman and she's got her vulnerable daughter with her. And there's these three brutal men in her house, you know, so to be able to take that risk, uh, it was played perfectly. Um, one of the most wonderful sequences in this movie. And that's Fincher because every time I've called out, what do I feel is Fincher? It's been a slow motion moment, you know, in hmm. Alien 3 with the with the dropping of the the flashlight thing or the the lamp or lighter or whatever it was, the smoke in Fight Club, this, you know, he does he does slow motion and he does it well. And every time he's done it, I really, really, truly appreciate it.
1: I think it's a fair point. I, I can I can see what you're saying. Like I, I think I probably see it better now than when you mentioned it before. Like, I can definitely see where that does stand as sort of a hallmark. And, again, speaks to the control that he has as a director, the the precision and the skill.
3: Now, Brandon, you brought up Jodie Foster being a, a small woman. I'd like to switch gears just for a little bit and talk about Jodie Foster and her performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I respect Jodie Foster a great deal. I, I, I think that she chooses projects very well Uh, I, I, for the most part. I, I feel... Like, she's not in a lot of movies. Like, she doesn't act as much as some other people that you see. Um, Like, The Rock, you know, for example. Uh, But (sighs) it's it's really interesting to me that you say that, like, oh, Jodie Foster is a small woman. You know, like, she has three, you know, men in her house. Like, it's... You're absolutely right, of course. You know, she's five foot three. And that got me thinking about... Uh, who was originally cast in this role which was nicole kidman Mm -hmm. and nicole kidman actually filmed for about two weeks uh, before she had to leave due to an injury she uh she kept uh, having a knee injury flare up that she that she got on set on moulin rouge and so she had to bail out and then they brought in jodie foster who they originally were thinking about having but then uh, you know, you know, had complications, but then the reason why she had the complications fell through and so it was kind of kismet. Um, but Nicole Kidman's 5'11", Jodie Foster's 5'3". And even though Nicole Kidman is a bigger, not I, I can't say bigger woman, but taller woman, um, Fincher talked about how if casting Jodie Foster completely changed the tone of the film, because he says if Kidman was in the role, it'd be like, what would happen if Grace Kelly got caught in the house? But with Jodie Foster, you have much more of a um, Ripley, um, Lisbeth kind of feel to it. I feel like she kind of brings that, even though she's small, she's mighty. And I feel like she is much more gung-ho and ferocious than Nicole Kidman would have been and i wanted to get your guys' opinion on that not so much just the nicole kidman thing but i mean if you want to but also just jodie foster in general and her performance
2: well the thing with with jodie foster is that the character doesn't start that way any the, the mastery of this film is is how he shows the development of this character because yes, she becomes fierce, but she's not like even at the beginning of the movie, when they first break into the house, like her daughter's telling her, okay, you got to swear at these people say this, say this, like she's a very timid person. Right. And when they're, when they're having the sequence of her daughter being mad at her dad, She, you know, she's being very timid about it while that's kind of the right response and that you don't want to try and be the parent that's turning a kid away from another parent during a divorce. You know, she is trying to be that trusting, loving mother person in this. And it, 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 all these experiences that are happening in such a short period of time, like this movie almost takes place in real time. It it adds to her growth as a character to become that fierce protector. Absolutely. I I completely agree.
1: I Yeah, I, I think that the arc is more interesting because of the fact that you have her physicality underlining the sense of uh, danger that she's in, mm-hmm. um, in the beginning of it. Uh, Nicole Kidman is a more physical person, right? And what I mean by that is if I saw her in a situation, in a movie situation at least, especially in that time period, I'm going to be more... Thinking, oh, she's just going to sock him in the face. So, like there, there's more of a physical sense of strength about her, in in my opinion. That that extra height and the way that she moves is uh, much more. Uh, I, I I'm looking for the right word, but it's not that I think she would not be in danger. It's that I would be more akin to th- to say, oh, okay, she's going to. Fight back, sort of thing. Whereas the way Jodie Foster's arc plays, and I think that a lot about her performance and her physical presence helps it to establish her as uh, a more vulnerable figure at the beginning, or at least to play to your perceptions of the more vulnerable figure uh, at the beginning of it. So I, I do think that it becomes, you know, a, a more interesting arc. Uh, in its own way and and just to tack on to what you were saying tristan i believe didn't fincher also when nicole kidman injured her knee didn't he initially go to the producers and say it just you know what just get the insurance money just scrap it
3: yeah he did he said like as soon as, soon as she said that she had to go he's like okay fine you know like it's okay we'll just just get the insurance money it will we'll take a loss it, you know like it, he was just kind of dejected it was just like we'll just be done with it but then when jodie foster became available it kind of you know brought new life into he's like oh wait we can do this also uh john it's i just find it interesting and i I say this with no cheek um i think the exact opposite about nicole kidman and it's just interesting that we see her two very different ways like i see her as much more of the the frailer character of the two between foster and kidman
1: i would say probably i mean the thing is i remember seeing her in dead calm where she plays a woman who's, you know, who fights back. And also, I would say that in Moulin Rouge, I think that her physicality probably, especially because, you know, in 2002, the memory of Moulin Rouge is still very strong. And I, I love Moulin Rouge. I think that's an amazing film. But her, the choreography and her movement, all in that, I guess maybe just left a residual impression with me of somebody who's much more physically sure and capable of handling themselves mm. in a, uh, a stressful physical situation. I so think I, I'm you fresh know, maybe off, it's just off of uh, Big
3: Little Lies, so that's probably why
1: for me. There. I, was that a show? That's a show, right? What do, you, what, what do you mean, is that a show? It's a good show. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just, I'm, okay. I'm actually asking for verification. I, is, th- right? I, I thought there was some sort of like, is that, a, is that some sort of show? It's, I don't know about this show that you're talking about. Wait a minute. Is it on HBO? Yes, it's an HBO show. Okay. See, then I can roll out my Simpsons reference. No, that would cost extra. <laughs> I don't have HBO. All right. So there you go. It's not TV. Yeah, <laughs> it's Home BO.
2: So another another part of this that really stands out to me is, is uh Howard Shore's score. Mm. You know, like, and it's it's interesting because you know, Fincher. It's hard hard to put this in words how I want to put this, but Fincher's the kind of guy where you know, fresh off of uh fresh off off of the Dust Brothers with Fight Club. i I seem to recall him just going electronic from then on out because social network is such a major score for the movies that he makes, but he doesn't. He goes back to actual film scoring. and you know, he's used Howard Shore before. And it's it's really interesting because I think I think his music adds so much tension to the film as well. And while they use this synth droning that's happening on, I remember on the DVDs they called it the Angry B sound when the slow motion mm. occurs. They call it an Angry B sound. But I wanted to get you guys' impression on the score and what you thought there.
1: I, I think it's a I think it's a really good score. I'm a, I'm a fan of Howard Shore. I think he's a, a very good composer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's uh, as subtle as it needs to be, if that makes any sense. It's, mm-hmm. The score never detracts from the action and never calls attention to itself. It's simply a piece of the puzzle, and that's what a score should be, in my opinion. And so, yeah, I, I think it works very, very well. And I, you know, I especially, I, I would give a special tip of the hat, though, to the, uh, the music over the, you know, the opening credits. I think does a really good sense of putting you in that mood of ooh, this is gonna be a good old scary story sort of thing. You know, I know you know what I'm saying. Like, mm-hmm. it, yeah. it puts you in that tense frame of mind where it's like ooh, okay, we're we're establishing that the city itself is claustrophobic, and we just keep getting closer and smaller until we're in one confined space.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the opening credits. They're really really cool.
1: Yeah, I, I w-
3: really.
2: I love the credits. I think they're really cool. I'm always surprised at how quickly they go by Mm -hmm. because they seem to be really quick. Because they just they start and they stop. It's so quick, and they're like they're weird credits, but I really love them.
3: It always felt very 2002 to me. Like it just, I feel like it dates the movie really hard because there was like a five year period around that time where that was very popular to do and. It just like it, like you can tell that you know like motion tracking is getting much easier, and it's getting um it, it's getting easier to do. It's getting more cost effective to do, and I I think that's the only thing is that like it's like have, having the text like float around within within the space, uh, like it's actually there. It never really s- struck a chord with me. I I, I don't like actively dislike it. I'm not like, oh my god, this is terrible. It's just kind of. I've heard people say that before that they really like it, and maybe it's because of, you know, like being a video producer myself. But I just there's so many times when I it, when I see it today, I'm just kind of like, oh my god, come on now, come on guys.
1: <laughs> I like I think it works very well for this though, because everything feels very close in. You know, it's up against the edges of buildings and stuff like that. I actually think one of the funnier parts of it is that um, when the director of photography's credit is listed, it's on a building that has like this sunny gleam on it. And like it's actually a little bit difficult to read the, the middle letters on the name. I always thought that was kind of funny. The, the DP on this film shot for two weeks
3: and then left because he couldn't stand working with Fincher anymore. <laughs> and it's the I same guy who that. shot seven. Wow, I didn't That's know funny. that, and it was—it's just so—it's so funny because I'm just like, you shot seven with him. You'd think you'd know what you were getting into, and he says that he was basically—he—he he left because he said that he had no artistic input. He was basically just a point and shoot man for Fincher, and he just couldn't take it any longer. And so he shares a credit with—I uh, think his name is Darius Kanji, and um, he shares a credit with um, oh like. Clive Harris—that's not—that's totally not his name, um. But he was actually just a camera operator, mm. and like he—he's worked with Fincher a lot as a camera operator, and um, you know, second DP and every, not second DP, but something like that. And so ever, this was his kind of launching point into being a full-time DP,
1: which I just thought was cool. Oh, mm-hmm. that is—that is kind of cool. But no, but I mean, to that point, that does. Uh, Conrad Hall. Is uh, I think the the name that you were searching for there because it's Darius Kanji. I have
3: no idea where Clive Harris came from.
1: Ah, you know C and an H. It's close (laughs) enough. Um, But uh, maybe then that that maybe then Darius Kanji's name getting a little washed out with sunlight was you know probably the reason. A little nudge from Venture like really you're going to do that? Fine, your name's going to be hard to read. Fine.
2: Yeah. We we kind of jumped into the credits there. Did you have anything you wanted to say, Tristan, about the music?
3: Oh, uh yeah, sorry about that uh Ooh. i yeah, I don't um, I'm kind of with John where i what I was going to say was I never really had the chance to listen to the soundtrack by itself, and I really like to do that with Fincher's films, um mm-hmm. because uh, the music is always so good in his films and and uh yeah, so I, I've never had the opportunity to just sit and analyze it, so every single time I've listened to it has just been in the film, and most of the time, I don't really notice it, even though my mm-hmm. Feel its effects, which I think is yeah. great for this type of thriller, for this type of B movie-esque thing that's going on. It's just to feel the emotion and 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 experience it with the characters and not be like, oh wow, that is that's some great cello right there. Oh man, did you hear that trumpet? Like, no, it's just you experience it along with everybody else.
2: One thing that I want to talk about with this movie is so It's something that the first time I watched it, Tristan, I'd like to get your input on this one, actually. John probably understood it, but the very first time I watched this movie, there was something really big that I didn't understand, okay? And as I've grown older, I understand it more, and it's a type of storytelling that I appreciate more, but the first time I watched this movie, I didn't know the visual cues about the the diabetes that the girl has, Mm. mm. Okay. so I I saw them there but I didn't know what they were. I didn't know what the watch was. And so when she went into her coma, I didn't know what was going on the very first time that I saw this movie. So you, I think being a little bit younger than I am, I'm wondering what you thought the first time you saw it. Did you know what that was?
3: Yeah. Yeah, like I when because she had a fridge next to her bed. Um mm-hmm. and you you got to keep, you know, certain types of diabetes medication refrigerated. Um, I, my best friend's father was diabetic. Mm -hmm. And, and so like from the moment, like she opens, like you, like you open up the fridge and it's twofold. It's just like, okay, obviously we know that these people are are wealthy because of the house that they got, but then they solidified it by having some product placement of Avion water, uh, (laughs) like available uh, 24 seven in the kids fridge. (laughs) And then that was the only other thing was the Avion water and then the insulin. And the watch... There's you know, orange like, juice as well in there. Oh, mm-hmm. thank you. Yes, that, yeah. that was the other yeah. sign. Yes, and that was the other sign. Like, if, she, if her blood sugar goes low, you got some, you got some OJ. Get some Godfather Part 3 on it. And, <laughs> and also, like, the watch thing, that does, that technology doesn't actually exist. But it was something... Like, I knew what they were trying to do. And um, the fact that the, the mother kept asking her, like, you're like, you know what happens when you get worked up? And I was just like, oh, okay, yeah, they were... They're going at it somewhat subtle, but yes, I, I did. I did know right away.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I know that with um, certain types, I don't think the 2002 this necessarily would have been, although possibly for people who were wealthy enough, it could have been. There are, I think, with type one, um, you can actually have like an implanted sensor sort of thing. I like, I'm, I'm, it's not that straightforward sort of thing. So it's possible that that technology was there just for a really. You know, higher uh, cost bracket mm. sort of thing. Um, I know because I know what the, the blood testing stuff looked like, because let me roll. So, you know, I worked at a toy store. I also worked at a diabetic store where we sold stuff specifically for blood testing and special dietary stuff for uh, diabetics. I so had no idea
3: go. such a store existed.
1: <laughs> Just uh it did. It did. Uh and I, I yeah, you know, I have got a lot of strange stories uh from there. Um Did you work you at would, a left-handed store too? <laughs> uh no, I did not work at a leftorium, but uh you know, hey, I've had a lot of different jobs, I guess. So um but yeah, no, but because the thing is the at the very least the the numbers and everything. Like I I I could figure out, like it wasn't something where I was immediately like, oh, she's diabetic. But yeah, once I saw the visual cues, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Because the thing is, it's also, it's all like a lot of the problem that I have with this and problem is a very strong word, but the reason it never really elevates to masterwork for me is because the script the underlying script i th- I think you have fincher a game coming at this and throwing i mean he is just directing the hell out of this thing, but the underlying script is good but not great like it's not capable of delivering the you can only elevate this material but so far, and the diabetic angle for the daughter. I think is an inevitability because they have to create some sort of tension situation, you know, some sort of time lock almost where it's like, well, if you don't take care of this soon, your daughter's going to die. It's not enough that you're trapped in the panic room and you're trying to get out and the guys are there and they're being crazy and all of that stuff. You have to have something else that drives them to the point where they have to get out of the panic room. Now Fincher, you know, and and, and of course, to give credit to the script and everything, like the way that they flip it and they wind up having the guys stuck in there uh, while Jodie Foster is out of it. That's, that's a good, that's a clever thing. Um, but it's it's just one of those things where I, I just look at the structure of this and it's a well-structured script. It's well-written. But it's not... Th- this is a movie that isn't ever um, about... Something greater than what's happening on screen, mm-hmm. and so for me, that's that's sort of the ceiling on it. Is it's net, like Fight Club is about something, Seven is about something, uh, the game is about something, and Panic Room is a situation that happens. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that all starts with the script, sort of thing.
3: And Fincher would agree with you on that one, and that's why he he refers to it. He refers to Panic Room as a B movie mm-hmm. for that reason, but he doesn't say it as an insult. Right. You know, like he 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 says it as like some of the best B-, B movies have X, Y, and Z. You know, like that kind of thing. And it's um, it's he, he, Fincher wanted something like this. He wanted some like after shooting Fight Club that was about something and that shot in 150 locations. He he was yeah. very much looking forward to Panicrum. Where it's just like, let's just stay in one location, and we just got to get this situation to unfurl, and there you go. Like, you, you could just tell that this was like Daniel Craig after doing Three Bonds, where it's just like, okay, let's just get this done. <laughs> let's just do this. Let's just take a rest. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just interesting that for some people, that is a positive. For some people, that's like, let's get the action. Let's just cut to the chase. Let's eat some popcorn. Let's have an experience. Let's mm-hmm. have a good time. For some people, that's a positive, but for you, that's saying that that gives it an automatic ceiling for you.
1: Yes. Yeah. Which, which isn't a knock. I, I like the movie and, no, and I enjoy it, but it's not, it's just never going to be greater than that yeah. experience. Yeah. Totally get that.
2: I love that. That's very interesting. Cause yeah, that's exactly what I love about it is after these movies, these massive movies, I love that. He's like, let's, let's make a B movie, you know, like the, there's a couple of filmmakers that I put kind of in the same category, not because of their techniques, but because they love cinema, you know, another one is Soderbergh, right? Where, the, you know, Soderbergh is a completely different type of director in that he's constantly playing with the technology in strange ways to try and get very interesting results, you know, and Fincher's coming at it with a different aspect of, like, how 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 can I make this really fascinating in a unique way with with the technology I have, but also expanding on the technology. So, you know, they're kind of similar, but they're making different kinds of movies. And for them to come in and say... I want to make a B film, I want to make a date night movie is wonderful, right? Because they bring their talents to a whole nother type of movie making that people really do truly love. It's not always about let's make it, let's take the next movie to the next level. How can we make it even grander? How can we make Mm -hmm. it even bigger? How can I, how can I take it to the next level? It's like, let's take it a step back and make something fun because that's a whole nother type of movie making that's out there.
1: Uh, it's almost, in a sense, like a, uh, an opposite approach to Nolan, then, because Nolan just does nothing but ratchet things up. Like, that's, he's, I don't think he's capable of relaxing at this point. It's just going to keep going until eventually he creates the movie Singularity and it tears the universe in half or something like that. Because, it, like it, you know, he's going to figure out time travel itself, and he will actually just have a documentary of himself going back in time <laughs> in montage to undo the movie that he just made. And it's going to cause a paradox and kill us all. Um, so yeah, no, I, I agree with you. There is, there is a certain type of appeal to the fact that Fincher has had this great momentum. And so there is an aspect of coming at this and saying he's kind of earned something that's a little more low key. It's, it's, you know, this is his vacation. You know, it's like a writer will always write a book, but sometimes, yeah, you know, even sting Stephen King wanted to write a Richard Bachman book every so often. So what the heck? Sure. You know, (laughs) what's
3: what's really fascinating is that like so many people us included have said that like this is fincher's smaller movie this is this is his vacation while he's while he's working and it's so funny because that's what it was intended to be and that's how the script was written but once fincher got a hold of it even though that's Mm -hmm. what he wanted that's what he wanted it for he shot still Fincher. yeah he's still fincher he shot for 120 (laughs) days
1: Good grief!
3: It was four million for the script to pay David Kep, and six million just to build the friggin' house. And amazing! It's just and they and they went way over budget, and like but Fincher you know got the money like he didn't he didn't just go over budget he just like halfway through he's just like nah it needs to be bigger it needs to be bigger <laughs> and then he got the he got the money because he's because he's Fincher and it, it like they shot so long that. Kristen Stewart grew three and a half inches. That's how long uh, they well, shot. That,
1: that would explain why she's sitting down in a lot of shots though
3: right, no no honestly <laughs> like that like she they shot for so long and then had to come back for reshoots um a little bit later because of Jodie Foster's pregnancy. She was actually four and a half months pregnant during most of shooting, what? and yeah. And so they had to use a lot of her stand-in and her and her stunt double a lot. He said that there were days when her stand-in and stunt double was there longer than Foster, and <laughs> um, that's why like they had to break shooting, wait for her to deliver, and then come back and pick up, do some more pickups. And that's actually why you see her put on a sweater. Is because mm-hmm. I- I'm not trying to be funny or crass, but like her breasts got so large that they had to cover them up because they were disproportionate. To when she started, even though they were heavily featured for most of the film,
1: right? No, that makes that that actually that makes a lot of uh, the, the putting the sweatshirt on. But but again, this gets to and I listen. We're we're here to praise him. That gets to the fact that it's never cheap. It's that like there are plenty of movies where you see the insert shot and. You say you know what? I'll, I'll throw I'll throw one of my favorite guys under the bus. The insert shots on uh, uh, *Phantom Menace* or *Attack of the Clones*? It's like, oh geez, uh, Obi Wan's beard is all wrong. Like it's so obviously not right. And you know, you and, McGregor, you and McGregor had put on like ten pounds. You know, so like whenever you see the insert shots, uh, it's like in the in the opening scene uh, on the Trade Federation where they're fighting the, the Destroyer droids, there's like a brief moment where Ewan McGregor looks a year older and oh then he's back to normal.
3: I, for some reason, never put that together, but I was always yeah. like, why is his
1: hair so weird in this shot? <laughs> yep, yep. And because uh, it had started growing out again. And um, so, there, yeah, there's a, um, there's a finesse that, that Fincher has because you never visually pick up on how much Kristen Stewart has grown and the sweater scene is so organically done Mm -hmm. that you do. It's so natural. It's, you can tell that somebody sat down and said, okay, we need, they didn't just say we need an insert shot. Okay. Shoot from her neck up. Let's do the Brando treatment from apocalypse. (laughs) Now they said, no, let's find an organic way for her to put on a sweater, you know, sort of thing. So,
2: so yeah. So I want to get back to something um, I was starting to talk about earlier there that I really love about this movie. And it's something that I find very frustrating about modern television that it's not done as well as this movie does it. Okay. And that is the visual way that he tells a story. You know, there's so many times, especially in modern TV shows, where I'm like, I didn't understand this. What happened here? What was the result of this? I don't understand what's going on. When all they need to do is a line of dialogue or something to explain what happened. And in this movie, not only does David Fincher give us the setup of everything in the house with the opening sequence of the buying the house and the tour of the house, but there's also many instances where... It's just a quick shot of something that establishes what happened. And I go specifically to the end sequence when the police raid the house at the end, you know, because at the end of the movie, the police come to the door and... I remember the first time I'm like, why doesn't she blink at him? Why doesn't she blink at him? Why doesn't she blink at him? I was so frustrated the first time. And then all of a sudden the cops show up and I'm like, what is happening? What is happening? And he just cuts to that one cop for one second. And it's the same cop that we saw earlier. And just that one shot so shows he didn't believe her and he did his job and came back with the proper people that he needed to, to rescue. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just a shot. There's no dialogue. They don't need to tell you. Just the shot tells you everything that you need to know. And there's there's many instances of that in this film. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit because it is also part of the reason why I love it. And it's the, the shots of opening the fridge. Right now that I'm older and know what that means, he's giving you everything in that shot. This is a diabetic child and there's her insulin. This is going to play. We see it here. Close the door. So, uh, Tristan, what do you think about that? Well, I think there's definitely, yeah, there's the Chekhov's gun
3: situation going on with with the fridge and, um, you know, don't introduce anything unless it's going to actually apply to the story. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like I, 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 I want to give TV a little slack here because we're talking about 120 days of shooting with also, with also months of pre-production and previous materials for two hours worth of material as opposed to what's us- usually one week that you get of shooting for a, uh, for one hour of television. Um, but I mean, there's still the visual literacy, you know, like we, we still have the visual competency that we need for TV. So I get what you're saying, but uh, I can't really agree with you that it's a one-to-one. I know you're just giving an example. I know you're just giving an example and I'm not trying to rag on you, but it's um, uh, John would like to interject.
1: Yeah. Cause this is where I'm going to come in and back up Brandon on this is Yes, to an extent, you're right. With certain like network television shows that aren't reality TV, or some of them that, that are, uh, you have a week to figure out what your storyline's going to be and how it's going to play, right? But I think Brandon, and forgive me if I'm I'm you know laying too much onto what you're saying, but the way I read it is, we live in the era of these massive single story arc, ten episode yes. seasons of things there's no reason that these sort of breakdowns in visual communication should happen because they do have, they take a year off between seasons Mm -hmm. and it's not like they take a year off and they come back a month beforehand and they're like, all right, what are we going to write? You know, like they have all of that sort of production time now with these, uh, you know, Netflix series or CBS all access series or even Disney plus series or anything like that. They have the time to think these things through and, and plot them out in you know in that sort of way,
2: yeah no, that's exactly what I was talking about. Yes. I yes, I can't
3: argue with that point, <sighs> except to reiterate that we're talking like a film crew, even if you have something as crazy as the Mandalorian, you know, like you you, you a film crew that's devoted to ninety minutes of material for multiple years is still different than trying to produce eight episodes in in three months you know like it's uh, I, like i i understand that there, you still have a lot of you still have a lot of time to back it up like like if you look at the mandalore and you have like you have to do all the designs i know it's it's not a one-to-one sometimes it's apple and oranges but i guess I'm, i guess what i'm trying to say is is that we're talking about a master we're talking about someone right. who knows the craft and I, and I'm not I'm 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 not trying to sound elitist, and it's gonna come off that way. But like when you get down to television, sometimes you're not always working with masters. You know, like you're you're, and, and I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm saying in, in sometimes a positive way where you get people who understand the nature of television, where it's just like yes, like we got to do this on schedule. We cannot go over budget. You will not get any more money. You have one week to do this. If you don't tough get it done you know like that kind of thing you can't always be fincher where you can say i need 30 more million dollars
1: so so let's put it into a cheeky analogy then where you have home builders who stand up neighborhoods and the houses are fine and the houses are lived in and the houses work out just great but they're you know they follow a certain pattern uh but then fincher is building you know a 200 million dollar mansion and there's going to be gold leaf on the banisters. And you know he's, he's brought in an artisan from Milan to paint a recreation of the Sistine Chapel on the ceiling. That's the sort of thing you're, you're trying to say, yes?
3: I, that's what I'm trying to say. I think that's a good analogy. But I also don't want to dismiss what Brandon's saying because I agree that visual language should know no budget. You should mm-hmm. be able yeah. to tell your story visually. It's a visual medium. Show, don't tell. Like if you're going to introduce something, do it in a smart way, because you can do it in a smart way without needing 30 million dollars. So mm-hmm. I I I'm basically going back on what I'm saying. So we all win. That's but the I'm not a hypocrite because I'm just
1: ex- expounding. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes.
2: Well, I think the last thing that I want to talk about here on this is we're kind of at an interesting point in movie making where We've slowly been seeing Fincher experiment more and more with CG, and he goes all out in this movie where there's so much CG, and it it is actually kind of mind-boggling how much is in it. Now, it doesn't detract from the movie for me. I'm curious if it does for you guys, because looking back on it now you can really see that it's CG. Like when the cell phone drops and it, it slides to the camera, you can really see that that's a CG phone. And when it when the camera goes through the coffee machine handle, mm-hmm. you can really see that that's a CG coffee machine. You know, so I I, I appreciate what they're doing and it does not detract from me, uh, from my enjoyment of the film at all. Uh, but I'm curious to what you guys think. John, what do you think?
1: No, I... You use the tool and you produce it the best that you can. And, uh, you know, it it doesn't – if I'm nitpicking the types of shots that Fincher is putting in his film, either there's something broken inside of me or there is something that is profoundly bad about the shot. Like it looks like – you know, like there there would be times where you could make the argument where it would detract. I would throw out there, Black Panther is a great film. But that final fight scene where they're falling and fighting, I saw video games in the 90s that looked better than that. And that's yeah. that's maddening to me. Because I'm like, you just spent $600 million making this thing. That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Whereas if I'm watching Panic Room and it's simply because there's no other way that that shot could exist. Yeah, okay. That's fine. Even if, even if it doesn't hold up quite perfectly sort of thing. But even if it were to hold up perfect, Like, I, I'm not... I'm not by any stretch the type of person that's going to demand it must look photorealistic. You know, I, if, if that creature standing in the corner doesn't look like it's going to come out of the screen and tear my throat out. No, I get it. Like, I, you know, you got to understand how how the craft is and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. That's just where I fall.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm sure what he'll do is in 30 years, he'll create a special edition of Panic Room and then say, well, this is, you know, like if the technology was there available at the time, of course. I mean, I go. would have made the mm. coffee cup, you know, yeah. you know, have a tauntaun, you know, on yeah. it, you know, so you know, something like Had that. To go there. yeah, <laughs> inevitable.
1: Inevitably, we were going to go there. Sure. Inevitable.
3: <laughs> uh, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. No. With um, I have always respected Fincher's use of CGI in all of his movies, every single one. I, I this this is one of those those moments where I am a like I I go from fan to fanatic. I'm just like no. Like, he is a master at utilizing invisible CGI. And by that, I mean in the best possible way. I, I echo kind of what John says. Like, in the way that was best at the time. You know, there there are certain times when you look at, at Fight Club or you look at Panic Room and the CGI is a little bit more obvious than it was in Zodiac or Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or Social Network. Um, now, Benjamin Button is its own animal. Um, but it's... You know, like, it's it's just so great because he uses CGI not as a look at me, look at me. It's it's always to enhance the shot or enhance the script or enhance the story or enhance the moment. And, I mean, like, this is a guy who will use CGI just to part somebody's hair in so that it's consistent with a previous shot. And it's so beautiful in its simplicity. And it's really just because he has that psycho nature of perfection. And that's why, that's why I appreciate it. So to answer your question, no, it does not bother me whatsoever. Even if it's quote unquote obvious, I still find it perfect for the time.
2: Okay, well, that's that's kind of the direction that I wanted to take the conversation. Tristan, John, is there anything we haven't discussed yet about this movie that you would like to talk about?
3: I want to talk about the bad guys. I want to talk about, yeah. you know, okay. like these... <laughs> yes, yeah.
2: yes, there's another element, yes. The,
3: these these great bad guys, I mean, like Forrest Whitaker, Jared Leto, Dwight frickin' Yoakam. I mean, like, who would have put these three guys
1: together? Yeah. I, I you know, I think that Leto it gives a great performance in this, uh, I think that Whitaker, it is so easy to have the bad guy with a conscience. Mm-hmm. And I think that Whitaker pulls it off so well. Yeah. Uh, he, I really think this film is not as good as it is without his performance. He is the essence of what a supporting actor is supposed to be, which is really that sort of heart and soul character that you can believe that elevates everything else around him. And I think that Forrest Whitaker is one of those actors that doesn't get enough credit for how mm-hmm. good he is at that. Yeah. Um, but the real standout for me is Dwight Yoakam Yeah. because I firmly believe that Raul is just an absolute sociopath. Like I'm terrified of him through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And it's so obvious just in the way that he occupies the space that Jared Leto doesn't know who he's dealing with the way that he quietly observes everything and the way that he quietly observes what needs to be done, you know, and it's, it's such a satisfying moment in the film when his hand gets crushed because he's, he's the guy, you know, is going to kill everybody if he gets the chance so when pain is inflicted on him, you're like, well, good. You know, I don't like anybody suffering, but if a- if anybody's gotta suffer, yeah, all right. <laughs> Raul kind of kinda earned this one. And know? I
3: loved his his visual arc because you know he's he starts off the movie with the ski mask on, dressed in black, and he says very little, just a few words here and there, and then fast forward to the end of the picture, and he has a bloody stump his mask is off his clothes are torn to shreds and he's hobbling up the stairs like some sort of horror villain and like using Mm -hmm. a sledgehammer as a crutch like just coming at you like just like a thing just coming out of the lagoon you know and it's just so perfect to see like it's terrifying he goes from quietly terrifying to openly ravaging terrifying and it's just yeah it's yeah it's um david fincher described dwight Yoakum as oh geez what was the words he used um a little overzealous in his performances <laughs> and he says he's like he's like i'd never want to cast him to like garrot somebody on camera because you never want him to do it with one of your principal actors or if you do do it on the last day
1: like
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's pretty great that's pretty that's awesome. great actually
2: Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. And this is why I'm glad we have a team here, a team of passionate people, because while I'm focused on one aspect, I completely miss these characters. Yes, they're all amazing. Um, You know, like uh, Jared Leto himself chose the cornrows for his hair. Yeah. That was Jared Leto's idea. And it's such a creative idea and a way for his character to stand out so well, because it's not something that you see very often in film. It's a very interesting hairstyle choice. Um, but yes, Dwight Yoakam. I wonder though, with the choice of Dwight Yoakam, I wonder if there's anything because in the last one we had such an effective character from Meatloaf that mm. we've got another singer here. I don't know. I've always wondered that. What do you guys think about that?
1: I think that's a really interesting angle. That's I hadn't considered that before, but that's sort of a that's sort of a neat thing where it's like Fincher now two films in a row has taken you know these sort of fan favorite singer like easily recognizable superstars if you will and turn them into somebody else that you know it, it's funny because meatloaf is robert paulson to me and like i grew up listening to meatloaf and meatloaf was meatloaf but now when i see meatloaf it's like oh robert paulson and he had a singing career before that yeah <laughs> right whereas dwight yokum you know i uh it, it, there's this and then he was in sling blade as well right yeah yeah so yokum's uh just a a he's a more gifted actor than I give him credit for because anytime I've come back and revisited panic room, I'm like, damn, he is so good. Like, why don't I see more movies with Dwight Yoakam in them? Because to pull this character off is not, that's not an easy thing. People underestimate how difficult it is to create a menacing character like that. Mm -hmm. Like there, there's a lot more skill involved in knowing how to use your body and your voice and your eye. Like everything about you has to be right Otherwise the audience is never gonna buy it. And they're just gonna be like, yeah, token bad guy. And Raul, he does not
3: slap Kristen Stewart. He does not hit Kristen Stewart. He punches Kristen yep. Stewart. Mm-hmm. And it's just those types of details. I, I I know that's not really like a little thing because it's you know it's so abusive, but it's just those types of things where you're just like this guy's a freaking
1: psycho. But but I will also give Fincher credit for letting that happen mm-hmm. because there is an instinct and we're all used to it. And this is, this is, I think what makes the violence in Fincher films really jump out at you and really create an impression is Fincher doesn't play by the same rules of, Oh, well, uh, it's a man hitting a girl and people are going to be uncomfortable with that. So we're going to have him pull back or maybe just punch her in the st-. no, Fincher's willing to say, hey, this character, what would Raoul do? What would Raoul do? And this is what Raoul would do, is he would just flatten somebody. He wouldn't care who they were. He would just flatten them. And so there's not going to be any sort of, like, movie logic applied to his physical actions.
3: Mm-hmm. It's like it's so funny that you mentioned that, like, Fincher doesn't play by everybody else's rules when it comes to violence. Um, in, in the original screenplay, uh, Raul doesn't lose his fingers. And that was Fincher's idea. He's like, no, it's like we we gotta have some payoff with the door. We have to have some sort of payoff with the door. And the screenwriter's like, what are you gonna do after he loses his finger? Just like have him screen in pain for the next scene? He's like, Yeah. Yeah, that is what we're gonna do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: I love it. Yeah.
2: The uh the only other actor I want to mention, just because I I was really surprised to see him at this time, uh like after the fact is um the the husband um i don't remember the actor's name or anything but i remember he was in carnival which i which i loved that hbo show carnival and, oh i uh,
1: saw the he, first season of that yeah yeah
2: he played the blind guy who was always drinking the absinthe mhm mhm so i just want was... to mention him cuz I, I loved carnival and any chance to mention carnival makes me happy
3: he so. was in uh, he was in pretender and i can never pronounce his name it's patrick bucho buchau something mm-hmm. like that uh, he's a fantastic actor doesn't get that much work at least not visibly, and, or, or not visibly, but like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, a lot of attention towards it. and um, profile roles. Yeah, there you go. I, I think he's a fantastic actor. I think he has a great calming quality and a very quiet presence. And uh, his role, uh, Fincher actually played around with the idea of casting Mel Gibson in that role. Hmm. Because um, I don't know if this played into it, but Jodie Foster is friends with Mel Gibson. So I was wondering yeah. if that kind of went along with it. But he said that he thought it would be interesting to have Mel Gibson Alvaston show up so that the audience can go, Oh, Mel Gibson's here. Everything's gonna be okay. Right. The big and action then, star showed up. Yeah, and then he gets the crap kicked out of him immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I I I personally would have really liked to have seen that. That I think that would have been
1: that would have been great because of the fact that it plays with the audience expectation. Right exactly. And totally totally trips it up and I would have also thought that the uh because there's no problem with the chemistry with Jodie Foster and and um the, the actor who is there but I, Foster and Gibson have a terrific on-screen chemistry. And so probably those moments would have been even better because they would have had uh you know, that, f- that friendly fl- flow, that shorthand exists. Yeah. Like, you know, two people who really know each other behave in a certain way. And that would have really helped, I think with, you know, e- establishing the idea that there had been intimacy in the past between them.
2: So, uh, last thing I'll mention. So I just watched this, uh, the other night, but I actually watched it for the first time in quite a while, a couple of months ago. And, uh, I actually decided to watch it with Aubrey. I'm like, I'm like I know I'm doing this podcast and I'm like I don't think Fincher has a lot of movies that I can share with my nine year old daughter and I'm like I know that this is an R rated movie but I think the majority of it is due to the language and stuff and there is a lot of language in this and I warned her about it ahead of time I forgot blowing off Dwight Yoakam's face uh, at the end of the movie right (laughs) yeah (laughs) but uh, we watched it Aubrey loved it she was on the edge of her seat the whole time and uh, I am glad that I shared it with her because she really enjoyed the movie but uh, cool yeah so Aubrey and I watched this a little while ago. I'm uh, pushing the boundaries with my nine-year-old. Yes,
1: you are. <laughs> uh, you know what? You know what? Listen, listen. You, you, you people that worry about what your kids watch and everything. My brother had a video store card when I was growing up, and I was seeing really inappropriate stuff by the time I was nine. And look at the way I maybe your we point should move stands. on. Yeah, let's yeah, move on. Move on. Move on. Uh,
2: so how how about we do some ratings? Yes. Tristan, what are you going to give this bad boy?
3: I, you know, if you asked me this, you know, like a couple of years ago, I, I probably would have given it a, a three, three and a half, but still, still saying I liked it. But it just never really connected with me. Maybe it's because I'm a father now. Um, maybe because I'm a husband. But there are certain things that just really connected me. like When, when Kristen Stewart has a seizure... Um, That hit me really, really, really hard Uh, and uh, like seeing uh, Foster's reaction to her and uh, I think what hit me the hardest was when Jodie Foster's character is holding on to her daughter while her ex-husband is getting the crap kicked out of him and she just screams into the void because there's nothing that she can do. That really got to me and it never has gotten to me before and so many moments like that happened in this movie this time around i feel like it just it took this long for this film to hit me and to 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 find me at this stage of my life and at this age and i uh i just i really really enjoyed it and i just i'm now going to kind of move this up in my watch list where i'm just like you know what we should watch that again and which I probably wouldn't have if I wasn't doing a venture podcast right now, so I would say four stars because of everything that we've talked about, but at the same time, I'm not giving it five stars because it's not like it's not like Fight Club, you know it's not like it's not like some of his other works and kind of what John was saying earlier about how there is a shelf to what a great movie can be if it doesn't actually try to say anything and so that's why I think I'm giving four stars which is nothing to sneeze at for panic room
1: yeah I'm uh I'm solidly at three and a half right now I could waffle at some point up to four uh I guess I'm a heartless father because I didn't give it the extra half star for those moments um, but you know that is what it is. I'm going to interrupt uh, you, John. Because I'm I, just I, teasing you. No, 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 I'm no, no, just no. teasing I, you. I
3: read your no. This is not. It's not about that. I read your review. Okay. I, I read your review on Letterbox, and I thought it was really well put. And thank you. I think you had some really great points. But when I heard you talking about it at the beginning of this show, and how like you had a you were smiling ear to ear, and you were just talking about all these great things, I think. You're lying to yourself with three and a half.
1: Well, I lie to myself about plenty of things, but I'm just going to say it's three and a half for now. <laughs> so who knows? It could improve later. Who knows? It could.
2: Awesome. So I love this movie. I always have. Uh, I go to this all the time. Tristan's got my guess. He's holding up his hand here. It's <laughs> definitely five stars for me. I love this movie. Now, the this is the hard part that I have is where am I going to put this in my ranking so mm. far? right and i struggle because i love the game so much so for me like in reverse order out of the 5 is alien 3 fight club 7 right and i'm like what do i put in which place that's reverse order right so uh, I, I i i waffle on this one as much as i love the game watching them so close together I think I give the edge to Panic Room, and Panic Room takes number one right now for me with Fincher, just because of all the technical things that I love in this movie so much. And I love the fact that my favorite director tackled a B-movie and was still too Fincher and just couldn't not Fincher this movie up. And I just, I truly love that. So this this one right now is my favorite of the five. So Panic Room, the game, seven, Fight Club, Alien 3 is my order right now.
1: What's so interesting about this is for me, Panic Room falls to the point where I'm debating where it stands in relation to Alien 3. Because mm-hmm. having seen the work print for the first time for this, I'm so infatuated with how much better the work print is of Alien 3 that I know that my emotions are colored by the fact that it is so new and fresh and different. Like I would want to go back several months from now and rewatch just panic room and alien three, uh, work print directors, blah, blah, whatever special edition. And just say, which one of these is it, uh, you know, wins out in, in, in that sort of like horse race for that, that position in the rank. I think, uh, it, it's funny. Like I, I <laughs> you
3: you say that like you say panic room versus alien three because of the long history that you had with kind of like, eh, with me, I am now saying as a positive where I'm just like, man, I don't know. Now I feel like panic room is in contention against alien three for this. um So I think for me, honestly, like I connected with it so hard last night. Like I, I loved it in a way that I've never loved before, loved it before. So I'd have to go, um, top to bottom fight club 7 panic room alien 3 the game
2: mhm bonkers we're all over the place <laughs> with these we are. i love it i love it love it
1: but it's different <laughs> levels of love everybody remember That's that right. this is like yes. being being last place on a fincher list you're still higher up than most movies will ever hope to achieve
2: yes you guys are all so wrong you're so wrong all <laughs> yeah man yeah wrong. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yes, I like and before before
3: we go, I would like to tell everybody to please go to the nerdparty.com. Please check check us out. Check out our uh, our our network. Check out our other shows. We've got so many different shows coming at you every single day of the week. We have a Harry Potter show. We've got a Doctor Who show. We've got a Babylon 5 video show. We've got Star Wars show. We got this, the Star Trek show. We we got so much cool stuff coming at you. But we'd love to hear what you think about our show. So please go to the slash contact, select House of Fincher and fill out the form. It'll send us an email. And if you can, please take the time to give us a review on, uh, on, on Apple Podcasts or Sprecher or Stitcher or wherever the heck you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear from you guys and, and uh, ratings help us out. And, uh, and also, you know, like check out our other stuff. Brandon, where can we find you?
2: I'm on Twitter, at Brandon Mattella. You can find me on the United Federation of Podcast Network with a show called Franchise Fatigue, which I do with my friend Zach Moore. And over there, we talk about movies, remakes, and sequels. At some point, we'll get to the Alien movies. Uh, not quite sure when, but we'll get to them eventually. Uh, the question is, do we, do we do them when we do Predator? Do we do them all at the same time? That's the big question. When we do Friday the 13th, do we do it at the same time as we do Nightmare on Elm Street? I don't know. These are big questions that we got to get answered. You can find me on Trek FM with a show called The Line, which is all about Star Trek Picard. And uh, also, uh, good evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast with my friends Chris and Tom. We cover all of Hitch's films in chronological order. John Mills, where can people find you uh, when you're not trying to break into safes?
1: Oh, wow. Well, that's... That's very rare. You know, I have a lot less downtime nowadays. So you can find me as Kessel Junkie uh, online, uh, social network of choice. Um, I like to think that uh, Letterboxd is the most fun place to follow anybody nowadays. So K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E you can find me on twitter and instagram and stuff like that too and here on the nerd party you can uh, listen to me on aggressive negotiations a star wars podcast that uh, i co-host with matt rushing and uh you know every so often i i'm angling for a spot over on franchise fatigue um because uh it, it's a it's a lot of fun over there on on ufp brandon franchise fatigue is is one of my favorite listens you guys are Thanks pretty very great
2: much. appreciate it always welcome Tristan, where can people find you when you're not buying the most wealthy, wonderful place in Upper New York for you and your family? <laughs> if only. Uh, I, you can find me all over the
3: interwebs under the username the insane robin. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. Those are usually the uh, kind of like like John said, the most fun places to be. Uh, at least Letterbox that is. And you can find me here on the network. Uh, I have two archive shows. Uh, one called Nerd Nuptial, which is a show, of, kind of a movie and TV review show that I I, I did with my wife. And you can also find me on Punch It, uh, writing in Star Trek, which I hosted with Charlene Schmidt where we talk uh, all things Star Trek and and uh, sometimes we write our own episodes. So please go and check that out.
2: Thanks so much for listening, guys. We really appreciate it. Uh, don't forget to tune in next time when we cover one of Fincher's most interesting films, Zodiac.
0: Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.